0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 26th, sixth, twenty twenty. Eight days until the election. I am John Hortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, so I... I'm wondering whether we are going to spend a week talking about whether or not the polls are tightening and the race is closing or whether the story is going to be that that isn't happening. Obviously, you can't anticipate the news, uh, but there seem to be these diametrically opposed... Uh, desires, I would say, largely among the mainstream media and the and the Biden campaign, to on the one hand pretend that the election is over, and on the other hand to not want to pretend the election is over because they need people to turn out and not to get over overconfident. Um, but uh, anything and everything Trump de- does or says, or Pence does or says is criticized for somehow being uh, an example of um, electioneering and we should really be beyond that sort of thing even though we're a week away from the election. Um, I note that uh, enormous amounts of fun was be- were being made at uh, the idea that Vice President Pence's um, campaigning for the re-election of Donald Trump, uh, he- National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien said that uh, uh, Pence was an essential worker and thus needed to continue to go out on the campaign trail, despite the fact that some of his aides had tested positive for the virus and that there was immense amounts of fun being made of this as though <clears throat> the uh, act of running for president and the reelection of <clears throat> the president or the election of new president is not the most essential thing that, that we face. But I think we're now in a position in which anything that the Trump team and the Trump ticket does is considered beyond the bounds of acceptable behavior, even if it's breathing. Uh, Because, you know, this notion that, yes, I mean, you know, if Kamala Harris's aide had tested positive, she would get off the campaign trail in the last week. In the last week, I mean, okay, so that's their spin, that they're not doing anything because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to fight the virus. But I mean, that's, that's insane. The notion that um, anyone in any proximity to any person who might have had COVID who is testing negative from COVID nonetheless needs to like go into a, you know, sealed plastic bubble forever or for two weeks. That is one very extreme way to deal with this as a mitigation uh, matter, but it is not the only way. And that's testing is not just for the purposes of Garnering statistics about who has COVID and who doesn't. It's also about giving us guidance about how you're supposed to behave when you have or don't have the disease.
1: Well, Kamala Harris did take some. Kamala. Time. Kamala Harris did take whatever.
2: <laughs> you can't say whatever. No, no, no. I'm over,
1: I'm over it now. No, no this is yeah. like a huge Here's witness test. Ah, <laughs> <tiff>. <laughs> I did what I could. It's over. Um. <laughs> So yeah, she 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 had two staffers that tested positive on October fifteenth. By October twentieth, she was back on the trail. So she did take some time off, but yeah, another- but it wasn't the last week. No, well, and their
2: and their schedule for campaigning has been, as we've mentioned many times, almost you know the. the- I mean, there's no I didn't Biden just called another lid for I mean, he's doing barely any appearances between now and Election Day. I will say the other it's going to be such a long week because already over over the course of the weekend, how many stories did you guys see? I saw several where they showed a long line at a poll polling station for early voting. And all we heard about was suppression. I mean, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the worst. She's here. She is in New York, totally blue state saying this, it, just because it's a democratically controlled state doesn't mean there isn't still suppression going on. And so, of course, the mockery, I think, totally justified was that, I guess, driver suppression happens every time there's a line at the DMV or at the grocery store. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I think we're going to be hearing a, a lot of dis- anything but the Biden campaign will be being discussed. And anything that might be some sort of seemingly existential threat to democracy is all we're going to hear about for the next week. Um, so gird yourself, people. <laughs>
0: um the you know it's interesting cuz uh, all this talk about voter suppression you know new york state is the is the uh, epicenter of voter suppression but it is not because you have poll taxes or you know literacy tests or something like that new york plays these games to make sure that people vote as little as possible in most elections they schedule school board elections for january on on no on no known schedule so that the turnout is 2%. they schedule primaries in september to make it impossible for the primary to, you know someone in the in the out party ever to succeed in you know uh, establishing a bid against the sitting person in office. That's voter suppression. Like there's, there's a whole history of this screwing around with dates of elections in order to make them unclear to people. That is voter suppression.
1: Having Texas does that too. And it's a thorn in the side of voting Rights activists, but it the should board, be like moving school board rela- yeah. elections. Yeah, it they, should they talk be. About it yeah, but it's a scandal. Know, it's not- it is a scandal that
0: you don't vote for these things on election day with everything else, and that these are not. This is done <laughs> specifically to ensure a turnout of two to three percent in elections, so that they can be gamed in elections that people don't, you know, aren't like the central elections. Uh, voter suppression by making people wait on lines for two hours. When people were waiting on lines for two hours in 2008 to vote for Barack Obama, it was a party. It was wonderful. It was a celebration. People were happy to do it in order to vote for, cast a historic vote for the most historic, historic figure of historicity. Um, and now, you know, if you wait for more than five minutes,
3: apparently we live in Soviet Russia. Well, and also at the same time, I mean, of course there are lines. The The degree of virtue signaling for early voting um, I can only go, you know, I, mostly by, by New York. I, I, I mean, you know, the, the virtue signaling on voting in general is has you know, been something to behold for, for many an election season now. But I mean, it is it's so in, completely out of control now that if every other um, word that you're going to hear is about how you need to get out there right now and vote early um, from every source in the world. Well, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're creating the lines. I mean the
0: word "vote." These commercials, right? That are, of course, nominally nonpartisan, but are actually just, you know, Biden commercials. Uh, all these things: vote, vote, vote. Skits on, you know, purported comedy shows that end with some kind of, in you know, invocation to vote. By the way, you know, one of the reasons that you don't necessarily want to do these things is you think that only your people are being told to vote when there's a big message about voting, 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 like. You might want to keep it quiet because you don't want to, you know, if if the if the Trump voter doesn't necessarily want to come out, you don't want to like hit them over the head with their responsibility to vote if you're Biden. But um, yeah, the the virtue signaling. So like, uh, when New York's early voting uh, opened on Saturday, so all over my Facebook, liberal uh, friends of mine and Facebook friends of mine are like, I've been online for four hours in the cold, but I don't mind. Mm-hmm. I don't mind because I'm exercising my right to vote. You know, it's like, and then, and then somebody, somebody I know, like in, invoked this famous thing that um, Abraham Joshua Heschel said when he stood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma with the King in 1965 when he said, "I felt that my feet were praying." So, so it was like, I feel like my feet are praying in a state that Biden is going to win by 25 to 30 points. Like, you can stay home, <laughs> you can stay home. Your vote does not matter. Trump is winning this state the way I'm, you know, winning Christmas. Like this is not your vote doesn't matter. I just want to make this totally clear to you. Your vote <laughs> doesn't matter. Nothing on the mm-hmm. on the ticket in 2020, 2020 in you know, in our in this district, nothing's up for grabs. There's no Senate race, there's nothing. Your vote doesn't matter. So
1: virtue signal all you like. Like enjoy. Okay. Uh, This is a bit of a digression, but it highlights something you were just talking about and also puts a spotlight on the atrophying of the left's comedic talents um, in the age of Donald Trump. So Sarah Cooper, who I don't understand, she's this comedian who lip syncs over whatever Donald Trump says in an affected manner. And she's become an, a huge celebrity as a result of it. She guest hosted Jimmy Kimmel. I, I don't understand the appeal beyond the fact that it's sort of a send up of Trump, but like sort of a lazy one. Um, so whatever. She had this video mocking Donald Trump's uh, interview with Leslie Stahl during the climate change aspects of it, where she's going back and forth with Leslie about how uh, uh, we have, you know, certain scientists disagree and whatever, saying, talking about climate change in the very uh, cosmetic Trumpian way without very much comprehension of the issue, but trying to push back against Leslie Stalin, the notion that there's this, you know, uh, consensus around prescriptions to address climate change, not just the existence of climate change. And the, she did her, her bit. And at the end of the video, all of a sudden it, it fades to sad music and like pictures of environmental degradation and goes, climate change is no laughing matter. You know, you might've had some fun here, but let's get serious for a minute. This is a very serious time and you have to go vote. So it's like even if you had That's a beautiful. moment of enjoyment. That's beautiful. <laughs> even if you had like a second of enjoying that, which I did not, but maybe you did. You're not allowed to have that second. Welcome to, like to the Biden administration. administration. Seriously. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then you're robbed of that second of levity because yeah. it was frivolous. Can we talk <laughs> about lev- laugh. <laughs> Can
0: we talk about <laughs> Leslie Stahl? Can we talk about the Leslie Stahl interview? Because of course they finally they ran it, 60 Minutes and ran its version. And so uh, all over Twitter last night, people were, did you see Trump? Did you see that last, the end of the segment? Did you see it? Oh, my God. You know, the whining. The, the Really, this is just shocking. So I, I watched it. I watched it three times. I watched the end, the last two minutes. I didn't watch the interview because I watched most of it in the White House version. Right. And he's like, you're being very unfair to me, right? It's, it's In this tone, you're being very unfair to me. You started out by saying, are you ready for some tough questions? You don't ask Biden tough questions. You, and she's like, I didn't interview Biden. She He said, I watched Biden on 60 Minutes. Like, there's not a tough question. But you, me, you start out by saying, are you ready for some tough questions? That's why I need social media, because I can't get my message out, uh, you know, beyond you people, like that. And then a producer cuts in and says, Leslie, can we just wait? Because, you know, we have five minutes until something or other. And then Trump says... I think we've done enough. Mike
1: Pence Pence was over his shoulder, right?
0: But he said, "I think we've done enough. I think, I think, I think this is enough. I think you got enough. Okay, thank you." And then he gets, and then he sort of like looks around, and he sort of puts his hand up, and then he says, "Thank you. We'll be back in a couple of minutes," and stands up. Okay, this is the Rorschach test of all time because. Trump did not lose his temper. He did not whine, actually. He said something very serious, which is, I can't get my message out with you people. You throw Joe Biden softballs. you you come at me with hard, you know with with the hardest possible stuff. This is not the way it should work. Oh, okay, you know what? I, I think it's fine. I'll be back in five minutes. And then everybody who hates Trump simply brings their Trump hatred. To the screen and says he's disgusting. My God, did you see this? He's like a toddler. that He was, it, like I believe that he had like gotten up and st- stormed off. Abe, you, you pointed this out in the first place, like a couple of days ago.
3: I um, yeah, the whole because the whole story was Trump storms off set, and then I, I watched it. Um, <laughs> I watched the the White House's uh, you know own footage of it. And, of course, as you say, he didn't. Uh, I mean,
0: I've stormed off. I've
3: stormed off a TV set. Right.
0: On live TV. I was on Crossfire, and I got really mad at Michael Kinsley, and I said, to hell with this. And I took my mic off, and I walked off the stage. Uh, This was, like, 20-some-odd years ago. And, you know, there were news stories. He was... I said I was, it was. If you want to know, I, I didn't m- mean to make this about myself, oh, but no, there you was have a,
2: to tell the story now. No, the story <laughs>
0: was know. that I was brought on to talk about something I don't remember what. And then there was a story in the news, a controversy involving the New York Post. And I was then the editorial page editor of the New York Post. And Michael said, John Podhora, today, uh, this, uh, that, at the New York Post. And I said, Michael, I'm not on here to talk about anything involving my employer. We're talking about some issues like, no, 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 I make the rules here. I'm the one who to ask the questions and you answer the questions that I said, Michael, you go on like this and I'm going to walk off. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to. And so I said, fine. And then I took my mic off and I walked off the, I walked off the set. So, and I was in a rage and, you know, I, I didn't tear the mic off, but I kind of, you know, yanked it off. And, and, and that was, that was a storming off. So I've actually done this on live TV Trump was very contained and very controlled, and he was using Stahl's behavior to make a point about media unfairness. And whether that's the point he should be making at this late stage in the election is a different issue. But this was a controlled, contained version of it. And then they they go off camera. Like, they, they say, hey, you know we're, we're, you know, we're ready to go with the Pence segment whenever you are. And then Trump says, well, I think we have enough here. Right, it wasn't like I've done here. And to be fair to, uh, sixty minutes or st- you know, they didn't retell the story that he stormed off. Somebody at CBS News did, but it wasn't like the official line of CBS New of, of sixty minutes that Trump had had, you know, stormed off and behaved like a baby. Did um, it come
1: from them? I thought it it came from
0: White House people. No, no, that he had stormed off. No. No, no, I mean No no it didn't. It didn't. Anyway, whatever. So I only bring this up to say that, you know, we're now in a we're literally now at the stage at which uh Trump's gonna swear in Amy Coney Barrett. Apparently he's not allowed to. You can't swear Amy Coney Barrett in because there'll be a super spreader event if he swears Amy Coney Coney Barrett in now it's a where he
1: doesn't swear in i guess i guess roberts the, the controversy is yeah roberts would swear, her was in, the swear in but he understand wants and it is donald or uh, mike pence will preside over this evening's um vote right and he's having been exposed you know or, or within the the proximity of potential exposure within the last several days that's the yeah the controversy no
0: but okay so look this is a this is a the coronavirus, you know, people around Pence getting the coronavirus is just a fantastic opportunity for, for the Biden team to just keep the focus on this association between Trump and, you know, you know that Trump and, and Pence are the disease. Mm-hmm. They represent the disease. They have the disease. They're spreading the disease. They're not doing anything to stop the spread of the disease. And this is all the kind of objective correlative of that and and you know there's nothing that they can do about it. Let's let's move on and I just want to ask you guys what you thought of Chief of Staff Mark Meadows saying on uh, I guess on Jake Tapper's show. I guess it was Jake Tapper's show yesterday. Uh, you know w- we cannot contain the disease.
2: Okay, so I have a sort of counterintuitive take That's on that. Why, that when I, yeah, yeah, when I when I heard him say that, I didn't think that was them admitting defeat. Like we can't do anything. We're we're not going to lift a finger to help all these uh, sick and dying people. I heard a kind of more rational, you can't contain a virus in the way that, that I think Meadows was interpreting the question. He talked about mitigation strategies, which is a very different thing to answer. It's OK. The virus is here. We can't stop. You can't stop the virus until there's a. I mean, you can work on a vaccine and whatnot. But I, I think he just and this is actually indicative of his bungling many times in this job. So I'm not defending his his uh, performance as <laughs> chief of staff here, because he did the same thing when Trump was in the hospital. He misspoke pretty badly. But I don't think he was admitting defeat like oh, we don't even care. We're not even going to try to stop this thing. I think he was saying you can't actually we can't snap our fingers and end a virus. What we can do are these mitigation strategies. So, again, I think there was there was a deliberate misinterpretation and deliberate weighting of what he was saying to make it look worse than I think he intended. That makes sense.
0: Right. He said, we can't contain the disease. We're trying to treat it. We're trying, we're coming up right. with therapies. We're trying to come up with a vaccine. And then Jay said, why can't you contain it? He's like, because it's a contagious virus. Now, this then goes to a slightly different point about, about Mark Meadows, right? Mark Meadows is, a, is a, a, a congressman from the South. He was elected in 2012 uh, as a Tea Partier. He won 60% of the vote in every election that he ran in. And um, I think it's fairly clear, and this is an issue going forward for the Republicans and the Democrats, that he comes from this world of people who have no clue how to talk about issues in a way that isn't specifically directed to people who agree with them about everything. The notion that if you, you know, that, that politics is about uh, coming up with a, uh, you know, a message that sort of works for everybody. And so you don't say, we can't contain the disease. You would know that because you don't assume that your audience, A, is friendly, or B, that they share all of your priors about the about these things, which in, in a Republican or conservative context go to this notion that government can't do everything. Government can't do everything. It has a limited role to do various things. And so when, when you say, look, we can't contain the disease, that's part of an overall theory of of politics and government and right and left about individual responsibility, collective, you know, and whether or not large-scale government action works and all of that. But people who are hearing Mark Meadows talk, unlike the people in his district where he got elected four times or three
3: times or whatever it was, they don't share those priors. But, you know, it is really what he said is kind of the only admirable um, characterization of the situation, because on the one hand, you have, you know, the idea that, oh, yes, you, we, we can and will contain it. All we have to do is listen to the science and have a data driven policy. On the other side, there is the, the Trump idea, which is that, well, it's, it's, a, it's on the verge of going away on its own uh, anyway. It's just, we're rounding a corner just about there. Um, what, what Meadows said is, is, you know, actually, um, reasonable.
1: Okay. But that only works if you're predisposed to seeing that as a reasonable message. And all the data we have suggests that what voters want is magical thinking, right? Voters want is somebody who's going to come out of the, you know, know, out of the wings and introduce some containment strategy to this virus and get us all back to normal tomorrow. And that's impossible, but that's not what voters want to hear. So giving them a rational message is only only has downsides. Right, it's a completely so, impossible. Right, but it's so we, can, right. we can't grade it purely on you know. We ha- we have to introduce some style points here, and on that you know F minus. But that's what I'm talking about. So uh, I think we can agree
0: that what Meadows said. You know when they when you know when they say when Biden said you know Trump could d- d- don't condescend to the American people. You know. They can take it. American people are tough. You're not tough. Let them know. Tell them, you know, Churchill, you know, talk about how disastrous Dunkirk was. Like, be brave. Be this. But, of course, that's not what they want. Because what, what Meadows was essentially saying is we can't contain the virus. We're working really hard to figure out how to mitigate it and then how to vaccinate against it. And that's that's the strategy that we have. So, When Trump says learn to live with it, that is a version of trying to be the serious, sober, adult, tough leader that supposedly Biden says he needs to be. But it's Biden who says we're learning to die with it. Now, I don't blame (laughs) Biden because it's a good political
2: message. But it is not what he says it is. But what is missing on the conservative side, which is the message that Trump should and never did fully articulate, and he should absolutely be faulted for, is the personal responsibility aspect of this, right? So Biden's message is, I'm good, me and the government, we're going to save you. We're going to do all these things. We're going to save you from the virus. Trump had an opportunity, which he squandered again and again, to say Yes, we have to live with this. Here's what each and every American, responsible American should do. You know, you wear a mask, you socially distance. You, I mean, he had this this opportunity right. to make the conservative case for how you live right. with something that you can't control. And that's where I really fault in because that allowed Biden and the magical government thinking is what I would call it. No, because it, it's the idea that the government's going to come in here and solve this. It can't. So he's right to say it can't, but he completely didn't give. Americans right. a way forward who don't want the government to solve this problem for them entirely.
0: Right. Now, there are two possibilities of what's going on with Trump in the last week. I'm going to lay out the two and then, Abe, tell me what you think of them. You know the whole where he gave the speech and he said, COVID, COVID, COVID. It's always COVID with them. If a plane crash, 500 people die in a plane crash, they would say COVID, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And then this morning, making it clear that, this is, that that was not a one-off, he literally tweeted all they say is COVID, COVID, COVID. So he is saying, these people all they want to do is talk COVID, COVID, COVID. So either we're going to wake up on November fourth with Trump either in a you know in the poll position winning or having won or whatever, um, and we're going to look back and say he knew something. He knew something. American people are sick of COVID. They want a president. You know, they they won't say it. They won't tell pollsters. They won't admit it, but what they want is for someone to say, "Talk about something else. Enough with this, you know. I'm not getting it. No one I know is getting it. This is enough already." And they're tell they're saying they care about it more than anything else, but they don't really. And so I'm the, you know, I'm I'm the voice of the silent majority. That's one. Now either that's his id or his you know animal cunning instinct understanding of the voters that he showed with the way he talked to the white working class or they have polling data to suggest that this is a powerful message do you think they have polling data because all the polling data i'm seeing say it doesn't work i think it's striking that he won't let it alone but of course in the last two weeks of 2018 which we should get to actually i'm going to stop and then we can get to that so Abe, what do you what do you think
3: uh, I think he's on that message because it's entirely um based on his own desperate need to to move beyond the idea that um he is the covid president and the the nation is destroyed as a result of his pitiful response to the virus. I think that is purely it um, because as Noah's pointed out when he's reacting um, with any degree of sort of um, tactical consider- consideration to anything, we know it. He 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 announces it uh, one way or another. I mean, he reads the stage. Yes. St- yeah, yeah. He reads the stage directions, right? Yeah. Uh,
1: Noah, Christine, what do you what do you think? I mean, Meadows has been cleaning up his remarks all morning. He was supposed to do a CNN hit, I think it was um, one cable news hit, and then there was they had to cancel right away because there was a security event apparently or at least that was what they said but then he was talking to pool reporters and he said you know the only person waving a white flag along with his white mask is joe biden we're going to defeat the the virus we're going to control it we're going to try to contain it as best we can but if you look at the full context i was talking about therapeutics and masks so on so on and so forth so if there's a there's no strategy here obviously this was a failure and the sort of the jibe or the, the little jab over mask wearing Again, suggests. I mean, we've been talking about this. It's not ninety percent of people wear masks, but polls say ninety percent of people wear masks. So going off on an anti-mask rant uh, is is bereft of any strategic insight. I
2: would I would also add that for for all of us who have done our best to wear masks because we're supposed to. Making fun and mocking mask wearing is basically saying to all those Americans who've done their best, even if they haven't reached the 90% uh, saturation rate is, is not good. That's not good because right. people, it's, it's annoying to wear a mask. A lot of people have been trying to do it and because they feel it's the right thing to do from a public health perspective. And to hear the chief of staff say eh, he's wearing a mask, that's, that's a bad message.
0: Right. Now, the whole thing about these messages at the end is this question of, of how many people are yet undecided in this in this election and whether or not they are finding themselves whipsawed between, I think, essentially wanting to vote for Trump or, you know, they, they would have voted for Trump under other circumstances, but now they, they, they won't want to. And this notion that uh, Trump is kind of speaking to them directly, like into their, you know, into their ids, it's like... You know those people and what they're the way they're talking and the way they're handling it and what they're doing and how they're basically fascists who want you to walk around in a mask. And I'm not that guy. The question is whether there are enough people who say would be inclined to vote for Biden among those you know undecideds who are scared by Biden's you know the socialism, whatever you want to call it, are scared by Biden's ideological or the party's ideological predilections who are turned off by the COVID, COVID, COVID message. So you would have that it may appeal to people doesn't mean that it doesn't equally offend the tiny number of people left who haven't made up their minds. And therefore, at best, would be a wash if it's not a kind of bizarre thing to be saying if everybody in the news is saying we're in the middle of a second wave and that, you know, we now have more cases than we've had in four months. And obviously that number is going to increase as we approach the election. Because one thing that happens when case numbers increase is that they keep increasing by definition, like, you know, uh, this is a kind of, you know, algorithmic effect and people, it has to sort of burn through the population again for it to start declining again. It doesn't just rot, it won't just go up a teeny bit and then disappear. Um, on the other hand, like I say, if we wake up on November 4th and Trump did a lot better than we think, we're going to have two possibilities. One of which is that, uh, you know, the polling has mismeasured his support from the beginning. And the other is that he knew something about the PC nature of the COVID and mask and stuff response and how to get at people's you know, deepest inner feelings that, you know, whatever is left breaks for him and not for for Biden. Uh, now, let me uh, pull back for a second and talk to you about, we have a sort of a different kind of sponsor for this episode. Uh, it's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast well worth listening to. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best in 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening even inside your own brain. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you care about. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. And Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. Episodes with topics I find intriguing. uh, The fight to defund the free world with uh, HR McMaster, former national security advisor, uh, principles of investing with the great uh, hedge fund guy Ray Dalio. The prospect covers a lot, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight tweak in your mindset that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so, uh, in the last weeks of the 2018 race, you may remember that Uh, that Donald Trump and Fox News uh, went absolutely um, bananas over this story about the caravans coming up from Central America to sort of attack the border, which had started in August and was a real story. Like these NGOs were, in fact, uh, encouraging people to create essentially a wagon train from Central America, from Guatemala, Honduras and Guatemala, up through Mexico to go to the border in large numbers to kind of challenge American immigration policy effectively. And so it was like, the, they're coming, they're coming, the caravans are coming. All the polling data was looking bad for Republicans. And then the Kavanaugh nomination happened and the fight over Kavanaugh happened and and, and muddied the picture a little bit, which we can get to. But I think everybody froze in place and was saying, hmm, you know, maybe they know something. Like, I I don't get how this is helpful. But, you know, he's activating immigration. He's going all this, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe this is the save they're going to need. And it's, you know, and particularly because, you know, MSNBC hates it. That's good. And all of this. and And then Republicans lost 40 seats. And then they did okay in the Senate and didn't lose the Senate. I think, I think it's pretty much understood that that was in part, and if the, the Senate effect was the Kavanaugh effect, that it gave something for conservatives in these States and in Indiana and South Dakota and stuff to rally the, the base, which had gotten depressed and to get them to at least vote for the Senator. So the real question is, uh, that was the first indication that maybe, you know, t- the Trump 2016 thing was a fluke, right? In the sense that he had an issue set that was good for a certain number of people. And then Comey happened and all this. And that, in fact, his closing <laughs> message in 2018 was so incompetent that and did so little that here we are. So uh, I just wanted to bring that up and see if you guys had any thoughts about this, you know, in relation to 2020. Noah, do you? Oh, Christine, go ahead.
2: Oh, I, I just want to say that I think there's a there's there's been a tendency with Trump because of the the degree of the upset of 2016. Um, to, I, I think of the people who see like Jesus in their burnt toast. You know, there's a way in which when he when he he's done something and we keep trying to find Jesus in the burnt toast. But at some level, some of this stuff you said fluke, I think they're really dumb luck really should be something we give a lot more weight to, which is actually the counterpoint to that is why, unlike a lot of our our admired friends and colleagues. I don't think he's an existential threat. You know, I don't think he's a fascist who's going to stage a coup like the New Yorker is planning for. So I I, I think that's two sides of the same coin. But yeah, I, I don't think he really knows that much. I think he's also because he's shown some narcissistic personality traits. He surrounds himself with people who tell him the interpretation they think he wants to hear about his own role in the world. Which means which makes him a poor leader, but it also makes him really believe his own uh, hype. And so he might think one person, Stephen Miller might have told him, you talk about these caravans, you're going to it's going to be amazing. The Republicans are all going to. that's such a winning issue. Um, But it wasn't like because one guy who he happened to listen to or one Fox show he happened to hear uh, can sway him very easily. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure there's a lot of strategy. I don't think there's the 4D chess thing going on here for him.
0: Noah, what do you think?
1: So we were talking about this with Steve Kranaki <clears throat> the other day about how we had two consecutive elections that pretty much under, undercaptured the Republican vote. And if you look at the 2018 Senate races, you know, that's where the evidence is for that. Um, but they where you know, you had a real obvious uh, undercounting of the Republican vote was in pretty red states already, places like Missouri. Um, where Josh Hawley outperformed his polls significantly, though he was already expected to win. Indiana and Florida, where um, two Democrats who were polling well uh, underperformed to the point where the Republican actually won that race, surprisingly. But it wasn't a uniform effect, necessarily. Places like Arizona, um, where the Republican candidate was expected to do better than she did, or uh, than she did, um, the Democrat won that race. So um, if you apply that to 2020, I mean, let's say that the Republican vote in largely Republican states is being undercounted. Um, it still wouldn't save Donald Trump and it, it might save the Republican Senate, but only by a hair. If that most likely, you know, you'll, you're lucky to get a 50 50 split out of it. Cause you have places like North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and Iowa um, where it's, there's it's competitive. Um, but Arizona and Maine may be out of reach. I mean, so even if you give, give into the idea that maybe there's a, a two to five on the high side point effect in favor of Republicans, um, there's still a lot of places where the polling is so deep in favor of both Joe Biden and the Democratic candidate that it doesn't necessarily register. So, I mean, if there's some sort of a secret sauce message here, let's say masking, antipathy to masking, is the caravan message of 2018, you know, uh, maybe you can get two points out of really deep red states. But there's just a lot of territory here that's more purplish. So I I, I don't know whether or not that would have an appreciable effect.
0: I think the anti-masking message, if it's a message, isn't really directed at the deep red states. I think it's directed at deep red people trapped in purple states who may be, like, incredibly depressed. Like, so take New York as a deep blue state, right? So if you're a Trump voter, maybe you turn out, maybe you don't. You know he's going to lose, right? Obviously, the question for Trump is Florida, Georgia, and Texas in particular. Like, these states that he absolutely needs to win, if he loses any one of the three of them, the election is pretty close to over. Um, And obviously, I think, there's so much attention on the race in Florida that nobody who isn't going to vote, you know, nobody wasn't going to vote is, is going to somehow turn around and vote. But I think the idea is to, is to offer like a, if there's an idea, I'm, I'm interpreting that there's an idea rather than a, a simply a kind of affect, give them a reason that speaks to a deep part of themselves that they don't even know is, is, is there. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I'm just just trying to suss this out because Trump doesn't have a closing message.
3: I
1: mean, maybe if there's a bellwether there, it would be the Minnesota Senate race. The um, Michigan Senate is, race or the Minnesota no, Senate? No, Minnesota, oh, okay. which is a Democratic incumbent, pretty heavily favored Democratic state. Um, but... We don't have a lot of polling in the state, but everything in October shows a much closer race than we had recently. And we're talking about some uh, local pollsters, uh, KSTP, Minnesota Post. So it's not like we're talking about national pollsters. It's pretty much an off-the-radar race, but it's close. It's a four-point race. It's a one-point race, um, depending on the poll that you're looking at in October. And Minnesota has been crushed by this recent outbreak. Um, So, you know, if there is sentiment against the reimposition of these kind of strict uh, restrictions right. around social and economic uh, life. Maybe it manifests there. I just, I don't, I don't think it will manifest uniformly across the country in a way that will save Donald Trump if the polls are even remotely accurate.
0: Right. Well, the, the, so this, the situation that we find is that there has been a tightening over the last week in, in the, in the battleground States, right? Like uh, Florida, Biden was up by close to five. Now he's up by two. Pennsylvania has tightened a little, uh, Michigan does not appear to have tightened. Uh, but so there's been some tightening, uh, which is, I think basically this, you know, coming home effect. Um, all the same, the whole thing about the coming home effect is that if it's showing up in the polls, that would then suggest that, uh, this notion that the vote that is going to win Trump over is totally invisible can't be that invisible. It means that they are visible to pollsters, and that they're and that they're coming home, and that if they're coming home, he needs way more of them still to come home.
3: Well, but that's not. I mean, f- for those who believe in the invisible effect, their argument would be: Well, now now that there's a tightening, I it's it's this certainly tips the balance over to trump right if if, mm-hmm. if if trump is behind by anything other than five points that means he's going to win i mean right. that that is their framework well you know there's an interesting
0: thing going on which is here was the whole thing about the early voting and voting by mail versus the voting in person so it said Democrats are going to vote overwhelmingly early, right? By mail or voting early, you know, by mail or voting in person. And Republicans are going to dominate on the day of because Trump made clear that voting by mail and early voting was a disaster, right? It's a disaster. It's a disaster. Okay. So the everybody's been saying Democrats need to rack up enormous gains in the early voting in order to mitigate the effect of the day of election day voting but the the news in Florida is that the early and uh, mail in voting is is again tightening that um Republicans are in fact in person early voting Republicans are are uh, registered Republicans are leading Democrats by a couple hundred thousand whereas or not actually not that many like fifty sixty thousand, and that in the voting by mail, Democrats are leading. Republicans by several hundred thousand, but that it's closer than people anticipated, or that, you know, and so Democrats are panicking and Republicans are getting kind of weirdly confident. But there's a problem with the logic of this, because if Republicans are turning out to vote early, that means by definition, there are going to be fewer of them voting on election day, that the election day, overwhelming election day numbers depended on Democrats, oddly enough, doing better in the early voting than they're doing now, unless Trump is going to win Florida in a landslide, which is very unlikely to be the case. So um, when you read about this, these kind of tea tea leaf readings of this early voting, the fact that everybody everywhere, including in Texas and various other places, is voting early means this well, Democrats aren't going to come out on election day, and only Republicans are going to come on election day. Maybe a terribly flawed theory. No, what do you what do you think?
1: I I don't think it's a terribly flawed theory. Um, I mean, yes, I as you put it, the scenario you put to us, Donald Trump will do better than is anticipated when all the votes are finally counted. Um, but again, into this, you know, you can get deep into the conspiracy weeds here about how you know Pennsylvania is going to be counting votes now three days after the election, and they don't you know they can come in whenever as long as they're postmarked. Um, so we're gonna, if the race comes down to, for example, Pennsylvania, we won't know for for several days, and there will be plenty of opportunity for mischief there. But from what we've seen based on the early voting totals, Democrats are doing very well, and Donald Trump was expected to win election day by between 10 and 20 points. And if we're within that range, then the polls are still right. Right.
0: But I'm just saying that if Republicans are turning out and forced to vote early, the notion that then they're also going to vote, they're going to win election day by 10 to 20 points, because it's not that Democrats aren't going to vote on election day. It's that they were more, you know, they were saying they were going to vote early for the most part. We do have numbers. I mean, Florida is
1: a terrible metric for this. because Florida has been doing... Right. Yeah. Florida's doing a right. lot of heavy absentee and early voting. Yeah. Forever. Right.
0: Um, uh, there is a poll out from the University of Wisconsin, which is um, which does uh, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. That that uh, shows that among those who tell the pollsters that they voted early, and these are small samples, like 200 each, but because the margins are so lopsided, you can sort of trust that they're they're pretty close to the mark. Uh, if they were close you couldn't trust the numbers but it's like 75 to 90% are voting uh are voting for Biden in in those states in those three states it's like 90% or 89% in Pennsylvania 77 75 in Michigan and Wisconsin um you know the truth is that if those numbers I don't know when early voting ends or how this works but um those numbers are like pretty astonishing. You're not supposed to read tea leaves about early voting because you don't know how what turnout's going to be like on election day. Um, but if you can bank an early lead, you know of seventy, you know, then you basically have to make all that up to just get it even, <laughs> and then fight for every vote that goes down down the road. Um, so once again, it seems more as likely that Biden is going to win. A landslide, as that Trump will somehow, you know, basically scratch out a hard scrabble victory in the Electoral College. Um, all that—that that I think—is the one piece of evidence that we we can glean from this. You know, these early voting numbers. Which, by the way, I you couldn't pass a federal law for this. But this notion that we know who's voting by party is terrible. This is a terrible thing that we know who's voting by party. You know, we're not supposed to know anything about the vote official. We're not supposed to have official numbers about what voters are and who they are and what they're like ever. It's a secret ballot. That's not just the count. That means who these people are, you know, like, so you then know, well, okay, we got to gin up this number of votes or that number of votes. This is a terrible precedent that is being set. Um, I think. I mean, I, obviously the precedent's already been set because the, some of these states do it and some of these states don't do it. But, you know, there should be some kind of good government movement to ban the, you know, the counting by ballot by party member. Because, I, you know, this is just information the party shouldn't have and that we shouldn't have about voters. We should have no information about voters whatsoever unless it's supplied voluntarily, you know, in exit polling. How's that for good government stuff?
2: Well, as someone who's being relentlessly harassed on text messages for local elections here in D.C., I would totally support that. I mean, they're so wildly wrong about, you know, both party affiliation and what I but but they're just constants, a constant stream of text messages. So, yeah.
0: Okay, well, we got we got uh, we got a week to go. We don't want to bore you. So, uh, because we're just basically going to be talking about the same stuff every day. So, we're going to try to find new angles and try to, you know, gussy it up a little bit. So, I'm going to call a close to this for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep
3: the candle burning.